0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. U.S. equities have been rallying recently, and concerns over prolonged high interest rates seem to be mellowing out as investor sentiment improves. Here to unpack what's moving the markets is Fidelity's Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer. Armed with a variety of charts as usual, Yurian notes that the complex relationship between interest rates, earnings growth, and yield curve control is significantly influencing the current market dynamics. Yurian takes a closer look at the behavior of the bond market, explaining the rise in the 10-year treasury yield due to changes in the term premium, which had been negative during the era of low interest rates. He discusses the potential impact of rising interest rates on equity valuations and the market's anticipation of a soft landing for earnings growth. Yurian explains that while historically an inverted yield curve has always signaled a recession, it's hard to predict the exact timing and impact. The concept of yield curve control and its potential effects are also mentioned. Yurian also touches on China's economic challenges and the consequences of excessive debt, potential parallels between China's current situation and historical examples, as well as the differences between policy banks and private banks in China. This podcast was recorded on August 21st, 2023. As per usual, Yurian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Tim or Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's perspectives before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Um, Is it is it a case of actually looking back a little bit to what's been going on? There's been real churn in the bond markets.
2: Yeah, so if we can um, maybe just turn back the clock a little bit and recap uh, where we have been and maybe we pull up slide two.
0: And the slide two Urian is referring to is the chart technicals, which he tweeted on August 21st. And again, his Twitter is at Timmer Fidelity.
2: You know, the market, the stock market in the US has rallied a lot from the October lows last year to the recent highs. Uh, The valuation side gained five P.E. points, and that was, you know, in part because, you know, kind of the consensus, the sentiment area was offsides, waiting for that other shoe to drop and price and, you know, and adjusting their portfolios accordingly. And of course, that didn't happen. GDP estimates are actually being raised rather than uh, moved lower. Um, And then, um, you know, the earning side needed to come through. And so far, it's kind of coming through, right? Q1 and Q2 earnings season has been uh, has showed shown a growth rate that is still that is negative but less negative than was expected and so we've had this pretty big rally you can see it over here a very symmetrical rally off of that October low um, but the bond side of course um, is has not been behaving you know as we speak the 10-year treasury yield here in the. US is making new cycle highs and if we go to slide 15 you can see what's driving that.
0: And you're in slide 15 is US bond market, which he tweeted on August 25th.
2: So we have this, you know, this is kind of obscure and technical, but you can decompose the bond yield into three components, right? You have the inflation side, you have what's called the risk neutral yield, and then you have the term premium. And the term premium is what investors demand as compensation or holding paper for a long time. So generally the front end of the curve doesn't really have a term premium, but the long end does. And it's perfectly understandable, of course. I mean, if you're if you're buying long corporate bonds, you want to be compensated for credit risk. If you're buying long government bonds, you wanna be compensated for interest rate risk or inflation risk. And so what's been going on is that in in during the last 15 years or so, we've been in this era of ultra, ultra low interest rates. Uh, Alan Greenspan used to call it the bond conundrum, where yields were much lower than they should have been, uh, based, for instance, on this model that you see at the top. Um, and that was because the term premium turned negative, which really doesn't make any sense. But this has been an era, of course, of central bank buying, you know, QE, so the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan. You had dollars floating around the world because of trade and then you know those dollars would end up at the chinese central bank's uh balance sheet and they would buy treasuries with it you also had end investors especially here in the us with aging demographics buying a lot of bonds to solve for their retirement needs so all of these factors pushed the term premium well into negative territory and you can see that in the orange bars there i mean as recently as 2020 when we were in the heavy financial repression mode, term premium was negative one and a half percent. I mean, it was really, a crazy
1: time. Yeah, like, yeah. It, You sort of think about that's what that was for quite yes. a long time.
2: It's a very abnormal way to think about it. But so anyway, long story short, the last, just the last few weeks, that term premium has gone from minus 1% to minus point three 0.3%. And so when we look at the rise in yields, it's not so much that, <clears throat> The market expects the Fed to keep raising rates. I mean, that, that's a little bit of a, of, of a, of a factor maybe. Uh, part of it is, you know, uh, what's gonna come out of Jackson Hole and Powell speaking there, and will they rethink how they look at our star, right? The, the neutral rate, maybe our star is higher than we all thought it was. But the, the bottom line is the term premium is rising. And that is causing interest rates, uh, bond yields to rise. And bond yields are a factor into the valuation of equities, right? Per the discounted cash flow model, you are discounting future cash flows. And if that rate with which you discount them goes up, the present value of those future cash flows goes down. So it's really as simple as that in a way.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And so, I mean, people, colleagues of yours, you know, not so long ago, those on the bond side, I might add, um, were, were sort of talking their book, advising, saying things like, if you don't like bonds now, well, then you don't like bonds. Uh, we're looking at getting into sort of duration, adding duration. I mean, that's sort of coming to fruition. Is that is that about right? Yes, and, and I
2: think, you know, the bond market does have, I think, a lot of value here. And actually, as of this morning, the real yield on the 10-year, so if you just subtract the TIPS yield from the nominal yield, so this is the market's perception of where real yields are, <clears throat> is now at a new cycle high of 2%. So you're getting 2% real, assuming that the TIPS market can be believed, but the TIPS market generally is pretty right. But, you know, when I speak to my colleagues in the, in the bond area, uh, they've been pretty clear that they don't necessarily like the long end of the curve. They like kind of that one to 10 year part because at some point the Fed you know, will be done and then there's going to be value there. And then you don't have to weigh in on <clears throat> where what the term premium should be because there really is, the term premium is really something that you focus on for the very long maturity. So <clears throat> I, I think there is definitely value. And if we think about the yield curve and what that might mean for, you know, a recession down the line that certainly hasn't happened yet, far from it. Uh, but the more that real yields go up, even if that 10-year goes to 5%, it's now at 4.35 or so, um, you know, obviously that would still be a higher yield. But the higher it goes here, the more value there, there will be. Um, and um, and it brings to light, you know, kind of the 60-40. And does that 40 still play a role. Uh, It might require some patience, but again, the belly of the curve, right? Five-year notes, seven-year notes, um, that 40, if it kicks in, it would kick in because there would be a recession at some point that would knock the stock market down. And at that point, the Fed would be in play as easing. And even if that term premium is still resetting on the long end, that belly of the curve should, should respond and you'll get some, you'll get some, so some some results from that part.
1: Sense of, you know, again, what we've seen in equity markets since October and and sort of the balancing act of the growth we've seen there and, you know, where we've seen that, and there's a breadth story in there as well, but but just compared to what the bond market is doing, you know, what it means yes. for investors to have mm-hmm. this run up in equities and then also have this reset in the bond market.
2: Yeah, so we got a couple of charts on this, but let, let's start with seven.
0: Slide seven for us is the slide valuation and earnings tweeted on August 23rd.
2: And just to kind of talk about the stock market cycle, right, and the reason why market timing is difficult under any circumstances um, is because uh, oftentimes the market, the price, will anticipate the the fundamentals, right, the earnings uh, growth. Uh, Market doesn't always correctly anticipate, but they do anticipate and that's especially the true at, inf- especially the case, um, at inflection points. Um, and so this is why market time, or this is why the price action at economic terms. And, you know, you and I were talking about this a couple of years ago in 2020, like that rally made no sense at the time, but it made perfect sense in retrospect. And, and so this is why, um, figuring out what the price action is and why it's happening is so hard. But so if you look at this chart, uh, I've decomposed the return into two major variables. There's a third one, which is a dividend, but that one doesn't change very much. So the biggest components are earnings growth, which are the orange bars and changes in valuation. And I, I don't have the chart with me, but if you look at this chart, if you take those two variables, the orange and the purple, and you create a scatter plot of each other, against each other over a hundred years, you'll see that the that the correlation is clearly negative. So usually it's rare for earnings to grow while the PE is also expanding, and that's simply because the, the price action is anticipating future changes in the fundamentals. So what we're seeing here is that the PE has gone from a minus 35% change to now a plus 18%, and it's coming down now as the market is correcting a little bit, and um, and the earnings side's gone from plus 50 to minus two. And the reason I point this out is that the market is betting on a soft landing on an earnings recovery. And that earnings recovery now needs to happen in the coming quarters. And in all likelihood, in my view, the PE portion of this rally is over and we see this from history typically the, the pe rallies about 40 50 percent it hasn't rallied that much this time but it's done it over the same timeline and so at this point the market is needs to the leadership needs to pass the baton from pe driven to earnings driven and so and so that's why we're seeing indigestion on the valuation side and another way of looking at this is page six here uh, you see the pe has rallied from fifteen at the October lows to about twenty point three at the highs, and is now down to nineteen point one. And that fifteen to twenty, that is a fairly typical PE expansion during what we call an early cycle bull market. And again, we don't know yet that it's that that's what it is, but that's what the market that's what the narrative in the market is, is betting on. And so the relative valuation of bonds to stocks really comes into play here. And actually, if we can go to slide 17.
0: And Yuri slide 17 is the first of two slides titled The Fed Model, which he tweeted on August 24th.
2: You know, we, we used to talk about the Fed model uh, back during the Alan Greenspan days and the Fed model very famously kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't don't want to say predicted, but uh, but um, flagged the 87 crash. You, you can see that spike there in the pink line In '87. So the Fed model just looks at uh, the inverse of the bond yield, which is what we would call the PE of bonds, you know, the the price you pay for these future coupons, and we compare that to the earnings yield um, of the stock market or the PE of the stock market. And you see that black line and that orange line. And just note how closely, how tightly correlated those two lines have been from the 1950s all the way to about the mid-2000s. And at that point, this correlation started to fall apart because that was the bond conundrum that we talked about earlier, that era of kind of artificially low rates because central banks were playing a heavy hand in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Demographics played a role. Uh, But it's interesting uh, how much that relative valuation, which is the pink line, has reset. But according to this chart, we're still pretty far from even a neutral relative valuation but again that's because the term premium has been so negative so if we take this model and uh, adjust that spread for the term premium we get the next slide
0: the next slide is the second of the two the fed model slides this one showing the risk neutral yield Uh,
2: which basically shows uh, the same model but using the risk neutral yield instead of the overall uh, bond yield, uh, and I know I'm talking about a very technical things here, but now you see that gray line in the bottom, you see that kind of pendulum swinging back and forth, and, and it highlights, again, that 87 crash, uh, but it also highlights just the extremes of valuation at the 2,000 peak, right, during the tech bubble. I mean, look at that thing, How what an outlier that was. And then the opposite of that in 08, uh, 2010, 2014, how much more expensive bonds were than equities or how cheap equities were relative to bonds. Let's put it that way. And so now that has come full circle. We're not at extremes yet that we saw at at other valuation extremes, but it shows just the, the degree to which bonds and stocks are coming back into some historical equilibrium, the likes we haven't really seen in the past 15 years. So ultimately this is all good because I think that is the way it should be, and, and this era of financial repression is clearly has clearly come to an end, at least for now. But you know, again, it's causing a little indigestion in the stock market at a time when the market already uh built in a very large rally in an, in anticipation of basically rates staying low and earnings
1: recovering. Awesome. That that's an amazing chart leaning about those those gray lines. As you as you mentioned, there's a question about the recession on the horizon, do you see it? I'll just add to that as well. Um, Taking a look at things like yield curve control, this sort of gets back to the the discussion of an inverted yield curve. Um, How does it work? Can a small nation like Canada use yield curve control? What what are sort of the pros and cons? These are questions that are circling around. So if we can go to recession and then kind of the yield curve control discussion.
2: these a great question. So let's start with slide 10.
0: That slide is peak inversion, which Yurian tweeted on August 24th.
2: And so, you know, we know the yield curve, of course, is uh, quite inverted, and it has been for a long time. So, uh, you know, uh, ignore that at your own peril, uh, because we know historically that the result of an inverted yield curve, especially one that has persisted for some time, has been a recession, so and the track record is basically perfect. Uh, so it's certainly something we can't ignore, but clearly it hasn't happened yet. If anything, as I mentioned earlier, the GDP forecasts are being uh, increased rather than decreased, and 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 this highlights the 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 frustration. Let me put it that way with the yield curve as a signal, because it doesn't tell you when the recession will happen. It doesn't tell you how long it will last. It doesn't tell you how deep it will be. And even if you did know all of those three things, um, you would still need to consider how much of that is already priced into the market, right? So you you need to get four variables right. Um, And this is why there is no uh, quote unquote recession portfolio or yield curve portfolio because the the variables are all over the place. But having said that, it clearly looks like we've had peak yield curve. In, In other words, um, the, the, the yield curve is, is still inverted, but getting slightly less so. So there is some value in that signal. And here in this chart, I show you the three months, to 10-year curve in the top uh, for some you know, noteworthy cycles. So 2000, 2008, um, 1973, 1980, et cetera. And in the bottom, I showed the change in the S&P. And you can see, right, how variable it is. You do eventually sometimes get a big drawdown, but in other times, you don't really get any drawdown. And for instance, in 1980, the market actually rallied quite a bit because there were just other things going on, and the stock market was very cheap. The P.E. was, you know, seven or eight at the time. But it does show that eventually you can have a drawdown, and um, and maybe that's a story for 2024. And the reason why this is important is because the market is clearly betting on the soft landing. And if we go to slide eight, I can just show you the
0: earnings chart. Slide eight for us is earnings estimate progression tweeted on August 23rd.
2: Um, You know, the earnings have come in pretty strong, right? So second quarter earnings growth uh, or earnings season, uh, you know, 80% beat estimates by an average of seven percentage points. Those are really good numbers. And you can see that's the the black line there. So this shows the expected growth rate leading into earnings season and then during earnings season uh, it wasn't quite as good as the red line which was q1 but again you see that that pickup and so what's shown what we're showing here is that earnings growth is negative uh, because we're in that phase of the cycle but it's becoming less negative negative. and you can look on the left there that pink line the purple line the blue line those are the incoming uh quarters you know kind of like waves rolling onto a beach and you can see that Q3 is still expected to be slightly negative, but then the pivot is expected to happen. So the reason I mentioned this is because we have this yield curve. We have the market that has already rallied you know, close to 30% off the lows, presumably in anticipation of an earning soft landing. Um, and we have the earnings playing that role. But we have that yield curve signal kind of hanging over us uh for, for perhaps for for perhaps next year. So so that's kind of I think part of the indigestion that the market is seeing here. The market has has sort of front run a lot of potential good news, and now that good news needs to happen at a time when the yield curve is maybe sending a different a different message. So, what um, is so then the benefiting
1: by yeah. the yield curve control yeah. from, from yeah. that. Because if it's so long, yeah, you sort of wonder.
2: So, the yield curve control question is, is of course very important. And I did a deep dive on, on exactly that for when the Fed did that during the World War II era. Um, and Japan, of course, is doing it right now. They are adjusting the, the, the caps on at what point they defend the yield curve. So, it's gone from, I think, 25 basis points to 50, and now it's 100. And that's, certainly part of this reset in the bond market here in the U.S. as well, because it highlights that central banks are no longer playing that heavy hand in terms of keeping yields down. And of course, the U.S. Uh, Fed is tightening policy. And so maybe five years from now, everyone will be doing the yield curve control um, uh, because you know when you have large debt loads, as we do in the U.S. and in Canada and everywhere else, uh, you really cannot afford higher rates. So. To answer your question, uh, the short answer is that if one country does it, um, you can do yield curve control. The central bank can do whatever they want, but the cost of that yield curve control will be the currency. And we've seen that in Japan, right? The yen goes down because nobody, because you're basically printing money. You're you're kind of artificially repressing the financial system. So there there isn't going to be there's going to be an outlet from that. Even if you control most of the var- variables, you can't control all of them. And so the currencies that is then where that happens. So if Canada was the only country in the world doing yield curve control, um, then obviously yields would be much lower in Canada than they otherwise would be. And as they would be relative to the US, that would have an impact on the Canadian dollar relative to the U.S. dollar and other currencies. So that, that that's to me as, as, as clear as day, that that's what would happen. But in all likelihood, if there is a problem with debt levels and interest rates being too high, which would necessitate yield curve control, chances are that everyone will be doing it, right? The U.S. would do it, Canada would do it, Japan, Europe, China. Um, and in that case, the currencies the currency pressure would all cancel each other out. And that was true for the QE days, right? It wasn't explicitly yield curve control, but it was implicitly yield curve control. You're buying a bunch of bonds and putting them on your balance sheet. And there was not really a currency manifestation there. And so that's how I would think about yield curve control.
1: One of the discussions around what is going on in China is there's sort of an artificial of letting the economy slide. You'll see headlines about that. Then there's Europe saying, if. If China doesn't stimulate, Europe's going to catch a cold. Uh, I mean, what what do you make of some of the headlines coming out of China? Do we worry? Do yeah. we not worry?
2: Well, you know, the, the China headlines that we're seeing, um, you know, what we call the trust bank. So the way China works, you, you obviously have the government, um, the central government. Then you have what's called the policy banks, which are banks, uh, you know, they're publicly traded, but they are controlled by the government. The government tells them who to lend money to, how much and when. And so the The debt in the system is very high. I mean no one has created as much debt as quickly uh, as China has uh, over the past couple of decades and you know there there's a price to be paid for that at some point. you've just leveraged the system so much and it causes capital misallocation. We've seen that with the property developers and we you know we see the stories now about these developers not paying not not making good on their loans et cetera And so there's always a price to be paid. And Japan had the same thing in the late 80s, right? That was a massive debt bubble. And look how long Japan kind of languished after that. Of course, Japan was unique because they papered over all the losses. Like in the US, that doesn't really happen. Like you think about the financial crisis in 08, that was a massive debt bubble. And it resolved itself relatively quickly because everything gets marked to market in the US or in the Western world in Japan they just kind of papered it over and my guess is that China will be somewhere in the middle of those two right so the policy banks the loans that the governments wants government wants to make they're not going to let those players you know go under my it's might just my own speculation but private you know capital that maybe was running a little too wild for the for the government's uh, taste those are going to be allowed i think to go under especially if it's Westerners holding the capital or holding the loans, right? China's not going to care about a U.S. hedge fund, you know, holding the bag if, you know, if uh, Evergrande goes under or something. So I think it'll be a blend of those two. But uh, but these stories, the, the trust banks, which are private banks creating trust products, usually centered around real estate projects for wealthy Chinese, uh, those are kind of at the center of the storm and they have been in the past. And so I think we're at a point where the government can't really stimulate the way it used to, right? Like it you can only build so many things. So now it's really a consumer economy and and um and building a, a social safety net. And it's so it's a different emphasis on, on on stimulating the economy. So there's less that the government can do at, at a time when the debt levels are yet even higher. And those trust banks are coming back to the surface. So I, I think it is a problem. Clearly, the big reopen trade that we were all focused on earlier this year has been a disappointment, um, and it shows you that that you know you can't grow. That, that, that there's no there's no there's no free lunch, right? If you grow on um, excessive leverage, there's going to be a price to pay, and I think that's kind of what's happening. And then the question really is, how do you reset that? Do you do you paper it over? Uh, or do you have a mark-to-market event like we had in
1: 08? And my guess is it's a combination of the two. So can strong earnings growth offset higher interest rates or even just interest rates sitting where they are, I might add? And what do you expect the catalyst for earnings growth to be? If this if this is early cycle, what... I mean, I think I think there might be an AI question in there, but yes.
2: anyway, I'll let you answer that. I, I was uh, getting that, yeah. Um, so if we go to page, slide 11, <clears throat>
0: And that one is equity valuation tweeted on august twenty second.
2: Uh, I think this sums up kind of the evolving narrative, right? There's always a a a narrative in the market um, and the and the people the investors who catch on to that narrative early tend to win, and the ones that catch on really at the end are the ones that are buying high, basically. But here we see um, the p e for the p that's the gray line or the, the the pink line, sorry the gray line is is a standard discounted cash flow model where you plug in a six percent long-term growth rate for earnings and remember a DCF is a long-term model, right So you want to use long-term averages for growth rates um, and and then you plug in uh, a yield and you plug in an equity risk premium which I show in the bottom panel there and at a four percent ERP, and 6% earnings growth and bond yields where they are currently, market should be at 19, it's trading at 20, pretty close. Um, But if you look at purely the interest rate side, so the Fed curve, the forward curve, uh, real yields on the 10-year, you see those pink and blue lines, market should be trading at a much, much lower multiple. But of course, so that, that just highlights if you isolate just the interest rate part, Uh, you can see how overvalued the stock market is. But of course, it's never just about interest rates. It's about earnings and earnings are the most important, the more important driver. But it shows you kind of the jaws opening in that chart and it highlights that evolving narrative that the market a year ago was completely held hostage by the rate side um, and then it decided to move on to, okay, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for earnings. And so we're going to start moving higher. And so my guess is that these jaws are going to close a little bit, not all the way, uh, but a little bit. And so, what will be the catalyst for these earnings uh, for an earnings recovery? Uh, what we can see so far is that margins have stabilized. So revenues, so the top line, have not skipped a beat. That they, they continue to make new all-time highs in nominal terms. So part of that is clearly inflation, but that's okay because earnings and sales are seen in terms of price and volume and inflation plays a role in that. Uh, so revenues have not skipped a beat. It's all been a margin story. Margins went down, knocking earnings down very, very slightly. And again, earnings went from plus 50% to minus three. So it's not a big earnings contraction. And I think the thinking is for the next couple of years is that it is in part an AI story. Companies are gonna have to spend on ca- on CapEx. Maybe it comes at the expense of buybacks. So maybe there's a valuation angle there as well um and and stabilizing margins and so you know earnings don't have to grow 30 percent right they just have to grow a little bit and if the valuation side is is relatively okay then uh price gains will just follow earnings growth and i think that's kind of what's implied here in the market narrative right now.
1: Uh, amazing, so wonderful to, to get all of that insight and sort of help us understand the indigestion that is sort of being digested, as you say, here in Timur. We wish you a great time uh, this year at Burning Man. I understand you go tomorrow.
2: Uh, yes, if we go to slide one. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I'm in Santa Barbara where we are dealing with Hurricane Hillary, uh, but tomorrow we drive 500 miles to Reno and then early Wednesday we drive to Playa it's very wet, it looks like a lake right now, so we need for the water to uh, dry out, so Burning Man's getting a late start this year, but uh, we're all ready to go. We, I, I run a camp that feeds uh, the artists, uh, so we're gonna make a couple of thousand meals in a desert for the next uh, week and a half.
1: Wow, wow, we, we can picture that, and thank you for sharing that with us. Have, have a great time, and we look forward to seeing you on the other side.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.